Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from First Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. First Kings 11, 1 through 11, which can be found on page 276 in your pew Bibles, or 538 in the um, large print pew Bibles. Before I read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for all that you have made, whatever situations we find ourselves in right now. We ask that you would continue to guide and to lead us. Continue to give us trust in your goodness and your care through it all the good times and the bad, through the exciting times and the boring times, God, through it all, that we would trust in you. God, we ask that this morning, as we hear your word read and proclaimed, God, that you would give us ears to hear your message to us, that we would be changed by your word and your spirit, that we would be changed into the people that you are you have made us to be in relationship with you now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings chapter 11, we are looking at King Solomon. And you may remember that things started out well for Solomon when he uh, was young. And God said to him, ask for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he asked for wisdom. And God said, I will give you wisdom and all these other things besides. And we say, wow, this is a, that's a pretty good start. But we also find out that it's not the good start that matters nearly as much as the good finish. Here we have First uh, Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. This is later in his life. And it says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Yeah. As Solomon... (laughs) What do you do with that? I am restraining my tongue right now. Okay. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude... And you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you. I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. 
Turning then to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 36, which can be found on page 820 in our Pew Bibles, or 1570 of uh, the large print Pew Bibles. Mark 8, 27 through 36. Here we have Jesus with his disciples. As Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, on the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. What about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You're the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you may be familiar with the movie Finding Nemo. It's a pretty good movie. A movie uh, about a father and his desperate search to rescue uh, his lost son. There are some good biblical illustrations there. But the one thing I want to mention today about that movie is the character of Dory. She's a, a blue fish who's very, very forgetful. Those of you who are familiar with the movie are already chuckling. She's hilarious. But one of the things about Dory is uh, that no matter what she faces, she has this little saying, this little tune that she keeps repeating over and over, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming. Which is great. Because she's decided that no matter what is going on, what she needs to do is just keep on keeping on, to keep on going, to keep on swimming when things are looking hopeless, to keep on swimming uh, when danger surrounds, to keep on swimming. And that's good in one sense. As actually, that's a kind of a biblical notion, as throughout the New Testament we are urged again and again to persevere, to keep on keeping on, to have that steadfast endurance problem with Dory, though, is she just sort of keeps on swimming, directionless. She doesn't have a goal she's going towards. She's not swimming towards anything in particular. She just keeps swimming. And unfortunately, I think that's the way that a lot of us do, uh, do life. You know, just keep on moving. Just keep on being busy. Just keep on doing something, but not necessarily towards any goal. And when we talk about the doctrine of perseverance, the perseverance of the saints, of that uh, persevering to the end, 
that keep on, keep it on, that keep on going, it doesn't mean just keep busy. It doesn't mean just keep moving. It means keep on course and keep moving towards the goal. And as we talked about last week, as uh, the Westminster Confession says, or Catechism says, you know, what is the chief end of man? What is it that we are all about? What is it that the purpose of our lives is? And it is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if that is the goal, that is what it is we are to be persevering towards. That is what we are to keep swimming towards. Or to use a more biblical analogy, to keep running towards. And as uh, Paul writes to Timothy, run in such a way, to the church in Corinth actually, no, Corinth, run in such a way as to get the prize. Um, I got a prize recently. This is, this is my very own gold medal. This may be the only one that I have ever gotten or will ever get. And I got this medal because there was nobody else in my age category <laughs> that ran this race. It was a proud moment. <laughs> I ran with a six-year-old girl who beat me <laughs> and only beat me by as little as she did because I refused to let her go faster throughout the majority of the race. <laughs> but I won, I won the prize. But it's not because I beat anybody else. I won the prize because I finished the race. And that is, that is what uh, we are urged to do throughout the Bible, to keep running so that we finish the race. The advice that I gave uh, to my kids as they were trying to train for this run, this 5K run a few weeks ago, I don't know how to, I don't know how to run a race. I don't know how to coach anybody. So what I said is, you need, I know you don't want to go too fast and burn out. I also know you don't want to get to the end and go, man, I had so much left to give, and I didn't. I could have done better. And so what I said is, what you want to do is run as fast as you can finish well. I think it's pretty good advice. And not just for a race. I think it's good advice for life. You don't want to burn out early and just quit. Especially, that's what the book of Hebrews has been saying the whole way through. Don't let go of Jesus for anything. There's nothing else that compares with him. Don't give up early. Don't burn out early and be done. But also, you don't want to get to the end of your life and go, oh, I had so much more to give, and I, I didn't. I went too slow. I, I didn't give what I could have. So we want to go as fast as we can finish well. And Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, tells us how to do that. So here we go. Hebrews 12. This comes right on the heels, of course, of Hebrews 11, which has been uh, that description of everybody, kind of the highlights of the Old Testament, people from the Old Testament who were living by faith, trusting God, and their lives were different because of it. They said, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you will do what you say you will do, and therefore, I can live confident of that. And so my life is going to look very different than people who have no confidence in God being who he is or uh, doing what he says he will do. And so we looked at all kinds of examples and uh, saw those who had miraculous deliverance from danger and those who actually were killed even because of their faith. And yet, through it all, it says they were commended for their faith. Um, Then we get to Hebrews 
12, first three verses. Therefore, it says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We see this idea of perseverance over and over, that keep on going this direction. And one of the places we see it, maybe an unlikely place, is in one of the parables that Jesus tells of uh, the four soils. We talk about this one a lot. It comes up again and again. That Jesus says there's the sower that goes out to sow the seed, and the seed falls in the four different soils. And on the first one, the ground is hard. It doesn't ever go down, and so nothing happens there. But at the other three soils, we see that something starts to sprout. Something starts to spring up. And so you look at all those and go, yes, this is good. And yet, for one reason or another, for two of those, they never make it past just barely sprouting. They sprout up quickly, but then one of them, because of what he says, is like, a, uh, like someone who accepts the word of the kingdom of God eagerly, but then... When persecution or trouble comes, they fall away. And so they're all excited because they've accepted Jesus at church camp in high school. And then they get to college and they find out that, well, some of these people don't want to hang around with me if, if I keep talking about Jesus. Now I've got to choose. I've got to choose between Jesus and hanging out with these friends. Which is it going to be? I said so some people will fall away because of trouble or persecution. When things get hard, they just give up. But he says there's another group, though, that it seems like it starts out well, but then we have the, um, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth that choke it out, that choke out the gospel in our lives. And so it never bears fruit. And so that starting well doesn't end well. And not because of trouble, because things were going well. And we just got off track. It says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The idea here is we want to go straight to the goal and not get off track. And the problem is it's really easy to get off track. I did a little test uh, recently just to see how far I could walk in a straight line with my eyes closed. I encourage you to try this because it's a fun challenge. Here's what I did. You find a place where there are no no dangerous elements. You don't want to fall off a cliff with your eyes closed or get run over by a truck with your eyes closed. So find a place that's safe and then pick a spot far in the distance, way out there on the horizon. And then pick something else about halfway between you and that object so you can kind of line them up like sighting a gun. And when you have those two lined up, start walking towards them. And when you think you're going 
very straight and you're not going to get you're not going to veer one way or the other close your eyes and walk 50 steps continuing straight on course and then open your eyes and see if you're still straight on course i will tell you i've done this numerous times and tried to correct for my own self i have never once still been going straight after 50 steps that's not that far i figure if i can't walk 50 steps in a straight line with my eyes closed which by the way it feels very straight but if I can't walk 50 steps in a straight line with my eyes closed, why do we think we can look away from Jesus for any period of time and continue straight towards the goal of uh, glorifying God with the whole of our lives? I do want to mention, by the way, that this race that we're running, the race that's been marked out for us, you know, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, all these people that have gone before who have passed the torch on to us, as it were, and are now saying, Go! <laughs> It is your turn. It is your turn to glorify God with your lives, to spread his gospel through the whole world. Go, go, go. But before we start thinking, well, now, wait a second. I think maybe, you know, we don't want to add anything to uh, being saved by grace. We know that we're saved just because of what Jesus did for us and not because of anything that we do. And I'm afraid that if I start trying to do things, and that will be adding to... Um, Adding two, so I'm just not going to do anything at all. Well, New City Catechism question, the back of our bulletin this week, just as it happens. says, should those who have faith in Christ seek their salvation through their own works or anywhere else? And of course the answer is no, they should not, as everything necessary to salvation is found in Christ. To seek salvation through good works is a denial that Christ is the only Redeemer and Savior. So I do hope that we have that firmly in view, that there's nothing we can do to add to it. But I hope that that does not inspire us to laziness. That it doesn't say, well, if Jesus did everything, then I do nothing, therefore I do nothing. Because it's not just that he saved us from sin, but he saved us for a purpose, for a life with God. That's what we've been seeing all through Hebrews, that Jesus has made the way open for us to come into the very presence of the God who created us who loved us, and who has redeemed us in Jesus. And so for us to then live apart from him isn't trusting God at all, even if we give it those words. But it's living with him that's trusting him. And so here's the thing. This race that we are to run is kind of like, view it this way, you remember when Peter was in the boat and Jesus was walking on the water? And Peter says to Jesus, you know, if you tell me to come to you, and Jesus says, come on. And Peter gets out and walks on the water. But what if Peter had stayed in the boat and just said, all right, that's good enough for me. I know I believe I could do it now. Why don't you come on in? (laughs) Maybe he says he believes, and yet his life is no different. Nothing he's doing in his life is actually living out that faith and that trust. And in fact, he's missing out on what Jesus is calling him to. And so when Jesus says, come, and he says, no, I believe I could, but I'm not going to. He says, no, 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 I didn't ask you to believe. I asked you to come on. That's more like the race that we're running. A race that's actually walking on the water every step of the way. And so it's not that we can say, well, we can do this on my own. I can make it to the end of the goal without Jesus. That's why I'm adding to my salvation. Absolutely not. But it's like we're walking on the water. We're following 
actively in trust of him the whole way. And so if we think about this race being on the water, do you remember what happened to Peter when he was on the water and he looked away from Jesus? Down he goes. And this is why I think the author of Hebrews says we run this race fixing our eyes on Jesus because when we start looking at the wind and we start looking at the waves, we get distracted and we go down. But as Peter calls out, Lord, save me, and he's back up again. That's all it takes. Back to Jesus, back to Jesus, back to Jesus, again and again, fixing our eyes on him. It's the only way that this race is run. That's the only way. It's not on us. It's on him the whole way. We have to have our eyes fixed on him, being, uh, being very cautious about the so, so many distractions that can happen. We looked, by the way, at Solomon, one of the kings of Israel who started well but did not have a good finish. If you look a couple kings before him, you have the king Saul, who also looks like he starts out well, but then he quits trusting in God, and he starts trying to manipulate circumstances on his own. And it does not end well for him either, and the kingdom is taken from his family. And we have, throughout the Bible, these examples of people who seem like they start well, but they don't finish well. And so the encouragement is, not just to keep on swimming, not just to keep on running, not just to keep on keeping on, but to keep on towards the goal, to run this race as fast as you can finish well. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the one who is the the beginning and the end of faith. He's the first person who ever got it right, who lived the whole of his life trusting God, no matter what else came. And he is the one through whom we are able to live in trust of God and live life with God. So we don't want to get weary. We don't want to lose heart. Just consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that's the other side of this. Is It's not just that Jesus made it possible for us to live this life with God, but he also gave us a supreme example where you think to yourself, you know, if I were just able to communicate more clearly, everybody would accept Jesus. If I were just to explain Jesus better to my friends and my family and my neighbors, then no one would be mad at me for talking about Jesus. In fact, they would all be so grateful. And it seems like that should be the case. But we see that you know Jesus spoke pretty clearly. And if there's ever anybody who spoke the truth and spoke the truth in love, it was Jesus. And he spoke very clearly. He was not warmly received by a whole lot of people. In fact, he endured such opposition from sinners to the point that he was even uh, crucified in such a shameful way on the cross. And yet, it says he scorned the shame of the cross. Didn't even consider that part of it because he was looking past the cross. His eyes were fixed farther in the future than the cross. And so it did not derail him or his mission and did not derail uh, the goal of his life. And so as we find ourselves in situations where things maybe get hard, we keep on keeping on, not just moving, but staying on track. 
We mentioned some some of the persecutions going on uh, last week, and uh, have a story this week of someone from years ago that I think helps put all this in perspective as well. This is a man by the name of Joseph Tan, who's a pastor of Second Baptist Church in Romania. Um, And he said, when he had run away from his country to study theology, he then was afterwards planning on going back to Romania. And some of the students that he was studying with uh, pointed out that he might be arrested at the border. And one asked, Joseph, what chances do you have of successfully implementing your plans? question, I suppose. Well, he, he asked God about it. And God said, and he says, God brought to mind Matthew ten sixteen. I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. And it seemed to say, tell me what chances, what chance does a sheep surrounded by wolves have of surviving five minutes, let alone converting the wolves? <laughs> and this is how Jesus sends us out. And he said, that's how I send you totally defenseless. And without a reasonable hope of success. If you're willing to go like that, go. And if you're not willing to be in that position, don't go. And he writes, you know, after our return, I preached uninhibitedly. Harassment and arrests came. One day during interrogation, an officer threatened to kill me. And then I said, sir, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Sir, you know my sermons are all over the country on tapes now. If you kill me, I will be sprinkling them with my blood. Whoever listens to them after that will say, I'd better listen. This man sealed it with his blood. And they will speak ten times louder than before. So go on and kill me. I win the supreme victory then. Now, as he was writing this later, we know that he was not killed at that moment. The idea is... Here's a man who understood what the goal of his life was. The goal of his life was not to live a long life. And the goal of his life was not to find comfort and peace and security in the things of this world. But the goal of his life was to bring glory to God in everything that he did. And so he was able to keep on keeping on, to keep swimming in that direction because he had his eyes fixed firmly on Jesus We have, as I mentioned, so many distractions. And I think part of the problem is that we have become so eternally focused on the now, so eternally living for the now, when what we're supposed to be doing is living now for the eternal, always. And what we try to do is say, well, I'll live for the now right now, and then in a little bit, I'll start living for the eternal. And so right now, you know, I've got this uh, big project at work. And, but, you know, once that's done, then I will start living for Jesus. Or right now, I've got uh, this, this problem I'm dealing with in my personal life. And once that's done, then I'll start living for Jesus. Or right now, I've got to get the, uh, the crops planted. Or I've got to get the, uh, the harvest. Or now I've got to get it plowed. Or I, and on it goes. Right now, right now, the things are just so busy in my life. Well, a little older now, things are so busy in my kids' lives. I'll wait till they get a little now. They're so busy in my grandkids' lives. I'll wait till they get a little past that. And at some point, then I will finally start living for God. And we continue letting the pressing concerns of right now push the things of eternity off. 
as though, well, I'll have time for that in eternity. There's plenty of time there. But what we forget is right now is the race that has been set before us, that has been marked for us. The life that we are living now is the life that all the generations before are saying, it's your turn. Go. Live it well. Live it now. Wherever you are, whatever your circumstances are, don't wait for that to get into something else so then you can. The time is now. The calling is now. And the calling is to run this race with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Our goal glorifying God and not letting anything distract us or derail us, whether through good times or hard times, to keep on keeping on to the glory of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.